Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are now known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. Happy Halloween and happy Samhain to those who celebrate. I'm Marshall Hildreth. And I'm Kellen McPherson. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we hear from Mark Dunley, who talks with Ashley Ingram from Earth Justice on various environmental protection protection bills. Then we join Andrea Cunliffe in, I think it's part two or three of our coverage on the Troy City Council debates for District 4 and 6. Later on, we hear from Sina Bazilla Hickey, who spoke with Laura Welch of Fehu Farm to understand more about the pagan festival Samhain. After that, we welcome Aiden Hennessy to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine studio to learn more about their work as organizer and MC of the Dojo Beyond Time and Space. Finally, we wrap up with a spooktacular episode <laughs> with Tom Francis, who spoke with poets Dan Wilcox, James H. Duncan, Melissa Anderson, who shared their works at Ghost Poems at the Art Associated Associated's Gallery on October 27th, 2022. But first, here are your headlines. To start off, a report by the State Attorney General on the racial disparities in home ownership found that Albany has the second largest gap between white and black homeowners of any city in the nation. 69% of the city's white households live in a residence they own, compared to just over 20% of black households. Ownership rates among white residents are more than double that of black and Latino residents. The completion of a temporary pedestrian bridge over Route 85 in Bethlehem will take at least another week. The project to replace the previous bridge, which collapsed under its own weight, began in March. Drivers along Route 85 can expect alternating one-way traffic pattern between Kenwood Ave and Mullins Road starting 10 a.m. on Tuesday. The Times Union reports that a number of college programs in New York that are designed to help women have been discontinued in response to a wave of federal civil complaints. These complaints, filed by a small group of men across the country, describe these college programs as being anti-male, anti-white, and anti-Asian, resulting in a bias on college campuses. The Times Union found that at least 42 colleges in New York have received such complaints. During Tuesday's New York State uh, Senate hearing on the slow rollout of legal cannabis, lawmakers complained about the large number of illegal cannabis shops. Several senators contended that the legal shops to sell a large number of underaged individuals. Another major complaint is that with only 27 legal shops having been approved so far, marijuana farmers are having difficulty in selling their crops. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, a listener-supported radio that builds community through broad grassroots participation within Troy and the surrounding capital region. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org. Email us at hmm at, hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. The Community Gardens Protection Act, Birds and Bees Protection Act, and Class C Streams Protection Act bring together a cross-cutting force of much-needed protections for pollinators, green spaces, and recreational waterways. 
Ashley Ingram of Earth Justice discusses with Mark Dunley why it is important that Governor Hochul sign these three bills into law. We're talking with uh, Ashley Ingram, who's an associate attorney for the Earth Justice Sustainable Food and Farming Program. And there are a number of key environmental bills, the Community Gardens Protection Act, Birds and Bees, and Classy Streams, that have not yet uh, passed the state legislature, not yet been signed by, by the governor. So, you know, Ashley, do you want to introduce us to a couple of these bills and why they're important? Sure, sure. So I think just to set the stage, New York has set itself out as a leader on climate and environmental justice issues. And we think that the legislature took important steps this past session in passing some really critical environmental laws um, that are now waiting for the governor's signature. Um, so one of these bills is the Community Gardens Protection Act. And this bill would support community gardens that are on publicly owned land by increasing some of the protections um, and increasing community involvement in decisions that might involve development or other decisions that could um, harm those gardens. Um, another of the bills no, is- no, the I just, maybe before I jump away, when you say on publicly owned land, does that mean state-owned land or any municipally-owned land? State or or uh, municipally-owned land. Okay. Um, so what it would do is it would have um, the state's community gardens task force evaluate whether these gardens qualify as what are known as critically environment or critical environmental areas. Um, do they provide? critical environmental services to the community. Um, and if they do, then they get some special consideration and include more of the community in the process if there are um, any decisions that might disrupt the garden. And so the Birds and Bees Protection Act? Uh, yes, so this is a bill that would ban um, certain types of really harmful and unnecessary uses of a neurotoxic pesticide known as neonicotinoids. Um, so these are the this pesticide is the leading cause cause of losses of our pollinators. So that's why it's the Birds and Bees Protection Act. Um, but it also spreads really easily through our food, our soil, and our water. And so it affects entire ecosystems, and it's really dangerous for our health, especially for young children. Yeah, I understand that some agriculture-related groups have been opposing this bill. Um, how is the, you know, what are their arguments and how has the governor responded to that so far, if at all? I guess so. We have seen pushback from some of the, the pesticide industry and some of the industrial farm groups arguing that um, one, that there's not enough seeds that aren't treated with these pesticides to grow um, for farmers to use. Um, and then also saying that this could lead to a collapse of um, our, our agricultural system. But I think um, it's really important to know that um, a Cornell report found that these pesticides actually provide no overall economic benefit for farmers and that um, a similar ban was passed over, just over the border in Quebec and Ontario and a few years ago, and they have seen none of these disastrous effects coming out to play. The, 
Um, and so I think we've, and also in terms of protecting our food supply, it's really important that we have um, these pollinators who are able to support our food and agricultural system, including um, crops like apples and grapes and pumpkins that are all dependent on pollinators. And there was a recent report that came out that said that the decline in pollinators has already led to a decline in our food production. So it's really important for um, our health and our safety and our food system to take action on these, these munichs. Now, I remember a few years ago, there was quite a lot of attention to the fact that, um, you know, many uh, beehives and bee colonies or dying off, and I assume these pesticides had probably some role in that. Has that type of situation stabilized, or is still a massive die off of pollinators? Uh, I think the past, the last number that I saw was that there's been a 50% decline in both um, beekeeping colonies and also the wild bee population as well. And so that's continuing to to decline, unfortunately. And so that's another reason why urgent action is needed. Hmm. And what about the Class C uh, Streams Protection Act? Uh, yes, so this bill would um, amend New York's uh, water regulatory protection system to include what are known as Class C streams. Um, so these are smaller streams that usually support fisheries and other kinds of non-contact recreation. So picnicking, camping, fishing, um, marine study, and so, um, and these streams are also really important for drinking water because they restore the underground aquifers that a lot of communities rely on for their groundwater for drinking water. Um, so this would just expand um, the protections for those streams. And this is really critical given um, the recent Supreme Court decision in Sackett versus EPA, which limited what the Clean Water Act can cover um, at a federal level. To protect our water. So we really need New York to take leadership and make sure that these streams are protected. So when you when one says a class C stream, is there any way to describe the size of it or how could somebody like you know know whether a stream running through their land uh, actually is a class C stream or not? Uh, so the New York Department of Environmental Conservation has a map online that you can look up water air the water streams in your area and see exactly what type of designation they have. Um, but these typically do um, are smaller streams, but they connect to larger water bodies as well. And so um, important for all of our water health. Now, is there any real opposition to the uh, Class C Streams Protection Act? So there has been some pushback in the past just about the um, the regulatory burden that this would create for the state and for towns. But I think that this bill has um, taken some steps to reduce that regulatory burden. And we've also seen some increased um, funding and staffing levels for DEC through the Green Bond Act um, that could help relieve some of the concerns around that. Now, if our listeners wanted to express their opinion, you know, one way or the other uh, uh, about the Community Gardens Protection Act, the birds and bees, and the Class C streams, uh, how, how best can they do that? 
yes, so um, these bills are waiting for the governor's signature. And so um, people who are interested in expressing their support could contact the governor. Um, Earth Justice has put together an action alert on these three bills um, that could be used. Um, you can find it through a, a quick uh, internet search, um, Earth Justice Take Action Governor Hochul, and it should be one of the first results that come up. Um, but there's a, a message there that you can personalize to express why this, why these bills are important for you personally. Now, I didn't ask this question before, but on the Community Gardens Protection Act, um, I, I remember, oh, 15, 20 years ago, a big fight with uh, the mayor of New York City, who wanted to grab a lot of community gardens to, um, in his words, you know, build more affordable housing. But, you know, where does opposition to, you know, protecting community gardens come from, if at all? Uh, yes, so I think that there are different large developers who are interested in this land, um, and there aren't a lot of protections that already exist for community gardens. I think one thing that um, I'll say is that this bill doesn't prevent any, any development in particular. It just means that community gardens who, event, who are designated as critical environmental areas, that those benefits that the community garden provides have to be taken into account and any decisions. So we've been talking to um, Ashley Ingram, uh, Earth Justice Sustainable Food and, and, and Farming Program, and that's Community Gardens Protection Act, Birds and Bees Protection Act, and Class C Streams Protection Act. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And we'll have updates on this cl these climate legislations, including the C Community Garden Protection Acts, the Birds and Bees Protection Act, and Class C Stream Protection Acts as they become available. So check our website, mediasanctuary.org, or listen to future episodes of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. For our second segment, Andrea Cunliffe went to the Italian Community Center to sit in on the electoral debate between Troy City Council candidates Carol Harvins and Tom J. Casey, who are running for District 6, as well as Aaron J. Vera and Darcy Cunningham Casey, who are running for District 4. On October 18th at the Italian Community Center in South Troy, the candidates for City Council Districts 4 and 6 were invited to an introduction to the community and to a debate on central issues. I'm Andrea Cunliffe, reporting for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is part one of that debate. Tonight's debate, we have candidates from the 4th District and the 6th District. Now, candidates, I want to remind you, we don't have a time limit here for our answers but I would suggest keeping it between a minute to 90 seconds for each answer that we talk about here, each question that I'm gonna ask you. You all will get asked all of the questions. We're gonna to try to get through as many as possible. So the more concise you can be, the better it is for the audience, the more that they'll learn about you. The candidates do not know the questions in advance. Obviously, I'm sure that they have kind of a good idea of some of the topic. Throughout the process, we will reverse order so it's not always the same people answering first. Okay, Darcy, we're gonna give you the microphone. We'll start with you as we said we were gonna switch it up. Uh, and a couple of you sort of alluded to or touched on crime. And I wanna talk about crime with uh, particularly the South Central and the South Troy neighborhoods. 
Um, we've seen some things over the years, things have improved, things have gotten worse in different areas. Um, it's tough. It is something that is on the forefront of the minds of most people. Uh, there was a recent Siena College Research Institute study that said crime was actually at the forefront of voters' minds here in New York State. Might be a little bit of a surprise to some people, but, but it is. Regardless of whether things are very bad at points or things are getting better, that's what people are talking about. Everybody wants to be safe in their community. Everybody wants their children and their grandchildren to be safe. What steps do you think need to be taken to make Troy even more safe than it is? Well, I believe that open communication and better relationships with the Troy Police and the Fire Department as well would be a great first step. Regarding the crime, it's I live between Jefferson and Adams, and it's it's very concerning. It's concerning in the South Central, North Central as well. Every day there's a shooting in Troy, and people want to come to Troy. We're encouraging. We want businesses to open, and you know, come to Troy, come to Troy. However, when it's dusk, everybody's leaving, and because they're concerned and the fear. I believe that we need to work on this and have open communication regarding that as well. For example, you know, Troy has events all the time and it's wonderful. A couple weeks ago, I Love New York, there was a shooting and there was an event in the city and people had to flee into the pizza parlor for safety. So what does that say about the city of Troy? Um, come on in, but you need to leave before it gets dark. And, and that's just very concerning to me. Thank you. Following Darcy Cunningham Stacy is Erin Vera, Council District 4, running as a Democrat. This is his reply to the question of crime. Yeah, I can understand that um, it, it, it may seem that, that crime is on the rise. However, I was at a recent public safety uh, public safety meeting and the, uh, the chief was mentioning that um, overall crime is down in the city of Troy. Um, and I can under, again, I can understand that it doesn't seem that way um, walking around and, um, you know, there's, there's been an uptick in, in, in loitering and things like that. But I, I, I think that what we need to do is focus on a, a holistic approach to tackling this issue. Um, I don't think, um, you know, in increasing enforcement is, is necessarily the way to go. I think that people need other options um, and to see, um, it, would be, it would be good to see some, some partnerships between the, the city and some other organizations that, that um, have those same goals. Um, I think the community policing um, program that uh, Troy PD has has been very successful and it would be great to see that continuing. Um, I think having um, police on the streets walking around, introducing themselves to people um, has been a, a positive thing for, for, for downtown. Um, but I do think we have a lot of work and, uh, to do, and I think that we need to um, look into alternative approaches to address the issue. And that was Aaron Vera. Next up was Tom Casey, District 6 Republican. Tom, you're next. Well, I, I have to tell you, I, I, I've been out knocking on doors for two and a half months. And when the resident mentions crime, they're concerned. If I mention crime, they're concerned. It is the number one 
issue. I was down Saturday morning down South Troy. Everything's taped off. Two people were driving around. One guy was through the sunroof shooting at somebody else. Okay, how long till somebody innocent gets shot? Last Albany, in Albany last year, a guy was just sweeping his porch. He's dead now. That could have happened. Uh, like Darcy talked about, Troy Music Hall, they were out. Night on the town. Had a run in I Love New York. You think they're going to go to the music hall anymore? You know, this is the main topic as I go door to door. People are scared. I live in, I, I recently moved from 4th Street between Madison and Murrow. And this is where it's all going on. But now I live in Hillsview Heights for the last two years. Guess what? Two different shootings. We had a robbery last week in the neighborhood. People are very, very concerned. We have to meet with the police, the community police. We have to see what works in this country. It's a huge country. Let's see where is, what is working where and how can we apply this here? How can we get the funds to properly do this? Because as the downtown has grown and really gotten really back to what maybe it used to be, the neighborhoods have gone quite down. And these people, people who've lived there, didn't desert Troy. They're staying. And maybe you don't see them, but they still live in those houses, and they, they, they're frightened. People, a girl from school showed me bullet holes in her house, in the drug house, that I could see people going in and out. They feel they don't have a voice. We gotta work on these kind of things, because it is the number one issue. Tom Casey replying to the question of crime. We move on to Carol Harvin, a Democrat, for Council District 6. Crime is definitely up in Troy. It has not gone down. Some people are not reporting it. My friends tell me, they say, Carol, what are you going to do? All you're going to do is be a statistic. Nothing is going to be done. You're not going to get the items back that were stolen. So why call and report it? They don't call because the items are gone and they know they're not going to be retrieved back. I am a victim of four times of people stealing items out of my husband's vehicle and mine because the door was unlocked. Now I wouldn't got the ring, I have everything, but I'm not leaving my resident. I love the city of Troy. We have to work and make sure there's more staffing for the firemen and the police officers. They can't be everywhere at all times, but they're doing their job. When there's a crime, who's there? The firemen and the Troy police. But people like to come out at night. This is when you want to enjoy yourself. You want to sit outside on your steps or your porch. And when people don't see you, they do and they start crying. They just steal. We have to do better. We need the neighborhood watch. We need to get back and get active into that. Everyone should have a neighborhood watch. Just about every single block. I had a neighbor. She watched everything I was doing and I was so sorry she moved because the landlord is renovating the building and I want to make sure when it's renovated and it's completed she moves back. She asked me where was I? She didn't see my husband's car in front of the house for two weeks. She said it was a white man ringing my doorbell and she didn't recognize him. She wouldn't know who he was. She called me for everything. This is what we need in our neighborhoods. I didn't have to worry about anything. She said, Mrs. Harbin, UPS dropped off a package on your porch. Do you want me to pick it up? I said, no, I'm in my house. <laughs> but crime, we need to reduce the crime in the city of Troy. 
yes, people are still doing crime here, and the police and the firemen are doing the best they can. Maybe we should work on what the police need to do. If there's a shortage, then they need to have sufficient staffing. If it's the firemen and they're doing their job and they can't do all that they can do, then we need sufficient staffing because these are the forerunners that come and they do everything for us. Thank you so much. Carol Harvin for Council District 6 as a Democrat responded to the question of crime. This has been Andrea Cunliffe for Election Watch 2023 for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This segment was recorded on the 18th of October by Hudson Mohawk Magazine Andrea Cunliffe. To hear more of the election coverage, go to our website, mediasanctuary.org, and click that nice red Election Watch banner. And for those just tuning in, I'm Marshall Hildreth. And I'm Kalen McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. Streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend or maybe even a foe. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org slash HMM. Samhain is one of the most important pagan festivals, which is linked between... What is the link between Samhain and Halloween? Senior Basila Hickey spoke with Lauren Welch of Fayhew Farms to understand more about this event. Samhain is a pagan festival celebrated from October 31st to November 1st to welcome in the harvest and usher in the dark half of the year. This festival has a lot of commonalities with other festivals we may be more familiar with, and it's my pleasure to welcome back Laura Welsh from Fehu Farm to better understand what Samhain is. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so Samhain is uh, the festival that marks, like you said, the dark part of the year starting. Um, and it happens on October 31st overnight until the 1st of November. Um, and it's a Gaelic holiday that has been celebrated for thousands of years. Um, and the reason it's so significant is this time of the year is considered the time when the border between the world of the living and the world of the dead is the thinnest. So it's a time when people who are alive have an opportunity to sort of interact and reach out to that spirit realm. You mentioned Gaelic, and it's often referred to as Celtic. Is what Do you know what the difference is between Gaelic and Celtic? You know, I'm not entirely sure. I think Celtic is sort of a broader term and covers a larger region, and Gaelic is specific to, like, Ireland. Um, and it's also a language, so right. I, there's that distinction there. But there's a lot of... Um, you know, I, Samhain traditions, I think, are practiced in, like, the general Celtic world as well um, as just Ireland. Um, and uh, a lot of the traditions that we think of as Halloween actually come from um, the Samhain traditions that were brought with Irish immigrants to the United States. Um, so things like dressing up in costume is one of the traditions because... Um, when the veil is thin and you want to welcome spirits, obviously you, you want to welcome friendly ones, but that doesn't mean that those are the only ones that come across. So dressing up to sort of scare away evil um, is 
the root of that uh, sort of like trick-or-treating Halloween dressing up um, tradition. And um, another tradition that's super important is sort of making an altar to those who have passed on um, and honoring them by either like putting out their favorite foods, putting out pictures, lighting candles. Um, there's a tradition called the dummy supper where you sort of set a table to invite guests who are not physically present anymore um, and just sort of like invite them to dinner and have your dinner along with these empty seats that, you know, on this time it's uh, believed that the spirits of our loved ones can sort of come back and visit with us. So the connections between Halloween and Dia de los Muertos are so obvious. And so it really shows that as in like a borderless world, things really aren't mm -hmm. so separate in belief systems and, and um, the evolution of migration and how, uh, you know, you think of Mexico and you think of Ireland and, okay, there's also influence from Spain. Really, we all have similar belief systems and come to this similar idea of like the changing of the year and ways of ritualing and, and thinking about our ancestors. What do you take mm. away from that? Um, yeah, I think that like this time of year, like why, why would the veil be so thin and why are we perceiving that as humans? And it comes up in a bunch of cultures, I think, because we can see, I mean, at least in the Northern hemisphere, um, this is the time where the light is decreasing, where the plants um, that aren't evergreen are all like either dying off or going into the ground for the season. So that connection to like this, the overall cycle of life is very powerful right now. So the darkness and the return to the earth, um, it just seems like the right time to be thinking about those who have passed on. And uh, there's a lot of like All Hallows Eve and All Saints Day are sort of Christian traditions that reflect that same sort of reverence of the dead. You know, and like All Saints Day, obviously, it's specifically saints, but it's this idea that at this time of year, when everything is sort of returning to the earth and quieter, like the living world is quieter, there's other voices and other influences that are able to permeate our awareness um, and taking time to make sure we like acknowledge that is super important. Right. That makes sense. You mentioned the costumes and I thought it was very interesting that when the veil is thinner, that people would dress as animals and monsters so that fairies were not tempted to kidnap them, thinking they were people and, and their family, and, and the family wants to take them to the afterlife, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and like actually carving pumpkins is part of that tradition too, sort of like a gargoyle almost, like creating something that's scary. Um, and in, you know, the British Isles, pumpkins wasn't weren't like a plant that was super common, but that's sort of like the blending of you know, the tradition coming to the United States is using these sort of indigenous gourds as part of the decoration and warding off of evil spirits. And that's why you put like the light inside of the, the jack-o'-lantern too, because the light is sort of scaring off like the, the negative energies. Hmm. So Samhain is considered the most significant of the four quarterly fire festivals in paganism. So firstly, what is a quarterly fire festival? And then secondly, why is it considered the most important? The fire festivals are mark the points that are halfway between the equinoxes and the solstices. Um, so the other, like the opposite of Samhain is Beltane, which is like the spring fire festival at the opposite side of the year. Samhain is the most important because the 
placement of these fire festivals relate to the shepherding cycle. So Beltane was when all of the like herd animals were brought out to pasture. Um, and then Samhain is the time of year where everything gets brought back in and shut down for the year. Um, and so the fire in Samhain comes from the term bonfire. It actually is like a shortening of bone fire because at this time of year, if you couldn't provide for all of the animals that you had out to pasture, the ones that you couldn't provide for over the winter were slaughtered for meat. And so the bones of those animals were burned in a sacred fire, which was the Samhain bone fire or bonfire. And so it was sort of like a ritual that was thanking the animals for their sacrifice um, so you could survive for the winter. And um, this sacred fire, like people would take flames like on a candle or something and bring it back to their house and light their hearths with that fire and try and keep it going for as long as possible. So the reason that this particular festival is so significant is because of the connections to surviving through the winter and the connections to um, loved ones who have passed on because like having the opportunity to touch base with someone on the other side is, you know, obviously like a very impactful thing. Um, and something you need to take time out of regular life to achieve. What do you want people to understand about Samhain? And is there something in particular that you think is a really wonderful ritual that we should hold on to? I think one of the best things that we could t like take as a tradition of Samhain going forward is um, trying to meditate on those things which are just slightly beyond our regular perception because I feel like we still celebrate this time of year you know even in modern culture as sort of like a special spiritual time um, and we can feel that energy and I think like trying to actually make time to tap into that by finding quiet and dark and separate moments to just listen and try and connect with things that are not as obvious in our day-to-day -day life is really important. Um, and it's also a good time to sort of like seek wisdom or like seek guidance from the other side. And you can do that just, you know, like through like basic prayer, if you don't want to use any tools, but there's also, you know, divinatory tools that are super effective at this time of year. Like if you do tarot or if you read runes, you can kind of reach out like the spirit world is just closer and you I, I find that when I do magic or when I do sort of like divination work at this time of year I get like the really good answers <laughs> you know um so I think that there is still like trying to still make those connections with the ethereal and with the things that are just like we know that they are real but it's hard to remember that in just like life hmm <laughs> And for those who maybe don't connect with this type of communication, just even thinking within yourself and maybe thinking about the wisdom of your ancestors might be a good path. Yeah, definitely. Because even if you, you know, like the um, the more sort of spiritual and magical side of it doesn't speak to you, um, just sort of like looking to your past and researching about where, where your roots are and stuff like that, it's just can be really fun and interesting way to just learn more about yourself. Laura Welsh, always a pleasure to have you on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Would you like to leave our listeners with anything that I forgot to ask about? Um, I think we covered most of the stuff, but if you are interested in learning more about witchcraft, you could check out our Instagram at fehu underscore farmstand. 
um, or email us at fehufarmstand at gmail.com. And that's F-E-H-U. Thank you. Thank you to Sina Basila Hickey and Laura Welch for giving us an insight into this ancient celebration. Fehu Farm has an upcoming Samhain event, a divination workshop, and a ceremony for the dead that will be on November 11th. Learn more about these events and more on Fehu Farm's Instagram. Find them at F-E-H-U underscore farm stand. Now it's time for our comedy bucket, which showcases local comedians and entertainers from the Capital Region. Today we welcome Aiden Hennessy, the primary organizer and MC for the Dojo Beyond Time and Space. Aiden, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hello, hello. It's wonderful to be here. I uh, I appreciate you have me on. I, I've had a lot of friends come on the show. Kaylee Strafford uh, a couple of weeks ago, Brad Monkell this week, or uh, uh, sorry, Brad Monkell as a perpetual uh, friend of the station. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for coming on. Um, so just to start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the dojo? Yeah, so I started the dojo roughly a year ago, uh, a little more than a year ago. It started out as a DIY music venue, um, well, music and comedy. Um, so the in Albany, there's a lot of DIY venues, and it's largely teenagers, college students who build basically theaters in their attics, basements, backyards, and we put on shows. I grew uh, through college. I went to a bunch of these uh, birdhouse. Um, Caesar's Palace uh, was another one. Um, and so I decided I wanted to do it. And I did it a little differently than most folks. Most folks only do music. My thing was comedy, music, theater, improv, anything, any type of performing art I'm completely obsessed with. So before that, I was a practicing stand-up comic. Now I'm more so a, a producer and organizer of the local comedy scene. That's awesome. Like on a personal note, I'm very new to learning about uh, the DIY scene. Could you kind of go a little bit more in depth and describe that for our listeners? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm telling you, folks, there is it's it is an underbelly which builds so much of the culture of this city. If you haven't been to what is considered a DIY show, there is no dearth of shows to go to. Um, I. I I will be having a show this uh, next upcoming weekend um, at Polly's Hotel. That's not necessarily a DIY show, but it's very much of the spirit. Um, then the following weekend, I will be sorry. This is in two weekends. Uh, show at Polly's Hotel. It'll be a battle of the bands, um, and there will also be roast battles. We were going to have uh, um, Brad Monkell, who's another. Uh, DJ here. He was going to participate in one of the roast battles. Uh, we're still looking for an opponent. His opponent had to drop out. So uh, if anyone feels brave enough, you can reach me at the Dojo Beyond on Instagram. Where is the uh, dojo located? So the dojo was located in the Pine Hills neighborhood, and I don't want to give any address because uh, that's sort of bad form in the DIY scene. Um, unfortunately, we were relocated. So I've, I've since lost my venue, but I still do... Um, I still do what I call Dojo Studio. I built a music studio in my house, and we do tons of different productions. Um, most recently, uh, well, I do a, a radio show for uh, WCDB Albany, um, and I'll produce an in-studio as well as an interview with the musicians over at uh, WCDB Sunday at 8 p.m. 
Um, and that's what I've been working on, but we also do some video content and a lot of that video content was featured in a play I did at the Mopco theater in Schenectady. Um, we set up a green screen. Sometimes we'll bring in sets and props. Uh, most recently we filmed pro wrestling style promos for this battle of the bands event, uh, where I wrote characters and we wrote sketches. Um, and those should come out on my Instagram and maybe the YouTube page. Uh, at the Dojo Beyond Time and Space on uh, YouTube and Instagram. Yeah, so it sounds like um, you mentioned like it being a variety show, and just from your work experience, it sounds like you're uh, you have many hats, let's say, uh, which is so cool to hear. But could you kind of tell us how do you go about organizing so many different talents uh, and bringing them into one space? That feels like a lot of work. It's not easy. I have so many wonderful collaborators. And on top of coordinating talent and writing shows, uh, I have this stressful job of finding venues for those shows. One of my favorite collaborations was Crime Alley Sketch. It's a Times Union award-winning sketch show. I don't mean to, you know, flex my bona fides. No, I kind of do, actually. Um, um, Sorry. Crime Alley sketch show. And one of the sketch shows was like a 1940s detective, like real hard and rugged. And we got one of the local saxophone players to play an intro. And anytime you said his name, Barack Grizzle, there would be a, you know, a saxophone. Um, like a noir, like saxophone. Yes, yes. And then eventually the third wall is broken and the saxophone player gets told to shut up. Um, but yeah, that was a uh, Kurt common and, uh, that was part of Will Hughes's um, very brilliant, uh, show crime alley, which I, I produce now. And that was like an internet show that went up on the internet. Yeah, it goes up on the internet. You can check it out at you on YouTube at the dojo beyond on YouTube. Uh, you can also see one of my improv shows, which is really cool called quest buds. Um, it is imagine the show dimension 20. If, if you guys are dungeons and dragons heads, um, but instead of taking place on a board like a Dungeons and Dragons games, we have comedians acted out on stage and it's all improvised. So it's incredibly chaotic. And that's organized by uh, David Britton, who's another uh, incredibly talented local comic. Awesome. With so many like collaborators and you meeting so many different people, uh, I always like to think like entertainers have these pre-show rituals or just certain things they do to make it go smoothly, especially with so much talent in the room. Uh, do you have any of those or witnessed any of that just out of curiosity? Very embarrassingly, I was a theater kid. So from the age of eight and my, uh, so from the age of, of eight, I was, uh, uh, picking up pre-show rituals. And my thing was, I would always make a face to the audience from behind the curtain. Um, I, I don't know where I saw that first. I don't know how I got it, but it's, it's something that stuck with me through the years. Um, what, what are other people's pre-show rituals? I don't know. Eating a bunch of candy or... Oh, here's the... Well, if you ever do a show with me, make sure there's not a platter backstage because I will, for a fact, eat the entire platter of food. I remember someone <laughs> brought one for, for in high school. Um, it was like Subway sandwich. Uh, what was the... Oh, if anyone's from the North Country, it's, a, it's, it's called Drex Subs. Um, and it's a very like local chain restaurant and they brought a platter and, you know, everyone's sort of like picking off the top We're theater kids. They, you know, they don't eat a lot for whatever reason. Um, and, but I just demolished the whole platter. It was, 
it did not last long. <laughs> um, so kind of going from there and laying the groundwork for the dojo, uh, where do you kind of want to take this uh, and see the future of the dojo going? So what I've had fun doing, I, I want to make all of my uh, projects mixed media. And I think I'm going to scale back the music shows to four or five a year. But I want there to be a theatrical element to all of them, like our upcoming Battle of the Bands, where we're introducing heat to a type of show that has never had heat before, you know, and we're building storylines for people that like don't, you don't, you don't need to know anything to go to a 30 second men show. And we're sort of going to build a little bit of anticipation for that. Uh, but I want to do that with a bunch of different types of shows and to build that hype for my events. I want to continuously put out, um, digital media content. Uh, I'm thinking, I don't want to say over the air because uh, you, there's a psychological effect when you describe an idea that you have to someone where if they go, oh, that's a great idea. You should totally do that. You've already gotten the sort of like dopamine hit in your mind that actually mm -hmm. fulfilling that idea is. But uh, I've done a couple of things. Some vi uh, a video collaboration with eBlock was one of those types of things. Um, music videos. I want to get into some music videos with bands that type of thing to to sort of build up the social media following, get an advertising structure behind me, and then really start pushing those shows hard. Awesome. Uh, Kaylin, do you have any? any Sounds like uh, you have a very fruitful future ahead of you. Is the word I'll use. V very kind. Is <laughs> Are you using that word specifically for any? No, 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 oh, okay. no, 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 All right. no, no, I wasn't trying to, no, no. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, no, I, I, I love what the um, Sanctuary for Independent Media is doing. Uh, especially appreciate you guys highlighting local comedians. I do a similar thing over on my radio show at WCDB. Um, but it's, it's just so important that this is where culture gets made. You know, folks don't realize that uh, art is made at the underground and then it's, it's taken of its context and made into sort of the popular media. So what you see here in the underground shows and you support these local artists, you are making the future of art and media. And radio. Um, and and yeah. radio. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Right. What? Uh, I think that's something like me personally i did not realize until coming to this space and having the opportunity to, to speak to people like you um do you find kind of like engaging with like mainstream media or culture to be difficult or bridging that gap is becoming easier with social media i absolutely i i don't uh engage with popular media at all anymore it is all i need to have a personal connection to my art and and media um, it's, it's something necessary for me. And I don't even, I, I really don't understand people who don't know the people they're fans of. Like it doesn't make sense mm. to me, which is just, it's something alien and wrong with my brain. But, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I think we're coming up to the end. Yeah. Of the so we have about yeah. 30 seconds left. Where can you, where can our listeners find you, uh, find more about you and, and the dojo on socials and anything else that uh, left unsaid. Yes, I want to say thank you so much. You can catch me at the Dojo Beyond on Instagram, at the Dojo Beyond Time and Space on YouTube. And you can see my show the following weekend at Polly's Hotel, 7 p.m. 
Battle of the Bands, A Judgmental Swarm of Bees versus 30 Second Men, bunch of St. Rose bands. It'll be awesome. And then the next day, you can go see my play Starstruck at the Mopco Theater. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you, Aiden, for Thank joining you, Aiden. for joining us and making sure make sure to check out the Dojo Beyond Time and Space. And also, we'd like to throw a shout out to Brad Monkel for helping produce this interview. Thank you, Brad. Tom Francis welcomes poet Dan Wilcox, James H. Duncan, and Melissa Anderson, who shared their works at Ghost Poems at a special reading event to celebrate fall and Halloween. We took this took place at the Art Association's Gallery on October twenty seventh, twenty twenty two. On October twenty seventh, twenty twenty two, local poets, writers, and artists gathered at the Art Associates Gallery on Railroad Ave in Albany to celebrate fall and Halloween with a special reading event entitled Ghost Poems. This week, in the spirit of the season, we're going to hear from three of the poets who shared their work. First up is Dan Wilcox, whose poem Witches in the Attic was only a few weeks old at that point. Next up to the mic is James Duncan, with a true story about the ghost in the guest room closet and another Halloween tale titled October 31st. And finally, we hear Melissa Anderson read a piece titled The Snake or the Dream of the Werewolf, a Meditation on Tragedy. And this is a, a, a very, very recent poem. Um, it's called Witches in the Attic. The witches are up there, hiding out, in my attic, in my dark heart. I find their tissues in my toilet. There is a missing blanket, pillow. I can't hear them, but I know they're up there. When I go out, they make tea, feed my birds. At night, they come down, enter my dreams, watch me as I toss and turn, leave at first light. I find their panties in my laundry. I want them here. I like their red and green tights, their dark makeup that is never on my pillow. Their silent cackles are poems written at midnight. Sing to me, witches. Tell me that you love me, that it is my broomstick you want to ride across the face of the moon. Thank you. Uh, this is a true story. It's called The Guest Room Closet. Castleton on the river where Dutch sailors roamed with Henry Hudson in an age of haunted hollows and autumn winds blowing cruel through the valley. A small village grew and survived and now the line of crooked homes overlook a narrow street and railroad tracks, a slight embankment to the Hudson River. I sit at dinner with family friends, their grandmother cooking corned beef and cabbage, and telling us of the decades and lifetimes spent in small, tenebrous homes and shuttered factories all along the river. And in that very house, be careful where you, where you step, she says, for the man who owned it before her was dark and cruel, twisted in body and soul, and he hung himself in the guest room closet. Now, who won in seconds on corned beef? But our widened eyes met each other's, and wasn't that the room where... I was to sleep that night? It was, and I did, lying in a hideous state of cold terror and exhaustion, staring at the black doorless hole across the darkened room and watching 
waiting for some moaning wail, some iridescent tentacle writhing with hellish hunger to reach out and overpower me, rightly frozen with horror. But the hours passed, and I gave in to sleep sometime before dawn, waking alive and well, though never able to walk the streets of Castleton and not think of that room, that night, that man hanging from the beams spanning the guest room closet, waiting for the right night under the right moon to reach out and say hello. And this is my little ode to Halloween. Uh, in a book called We're All Terminal, this exit is mine. It's called October 31st. <clears throat> what a hellcat evening, pitch black perfect by 6 p.m. with the winds scattering every kid in the county down our street. Door to door in costumes with bags full of, with bags of all kinds, scaring up candy like it was our job, our life's purpose. The white ephemeral clouds circled the moon like cobwebs in the stars. For the first few years, it was just the trailer trash kids, my circle of friends and enemies, who would make the rounds. But sometime in the 1980s, when the razor blades wound up in candy bars and those nondescript cherry red rape vans began to make the news, parents got the idea to drive their kids to safer neighborhoods to watch over them. Our trailer park out in the cozy middle of nowhere, in the Pine Barrens beyond Nassau, was just the place for the scared suburbanites to come and celebrate, like the good little pagans we all are deep in our heart. We trailer trash kids didn't care because it added a sense of the unknown to our night, a flock of strangers to mingle with through the darkened yards and sidewalks, our feet darting in and out of flickering jack-o'-lantern lights, the visceral scent of pumpkins and rotting leaves and makeup. Some trailers were set back in the woods or shaded, dark pathways to the front porches, and a handful would play those scary sound effects cassette tapes, which were so damn good I'd sometimes sit under the windows and listen to those scary stories and sounds creaking through the speakers of a propped-up boombox all night, imagining the walking dead, the howling wolves, the witch's cauldron. The build-up to that magic night was unmistakably heaven. The car rides to distant pumpkin patches, the fall carnivals with hay mazes and cider donuts and dark wanderings around farmhouses done up to look like something from a Charlie Brown special. When that night finally came, the hours rushed by, Life racing to oncoming death, each door a friend with a parting gift. The knowledge that the, that the night was fading away hung over every joke between friends, every candy trade, every costume change to go back out for round two to see if people would still give us candy at 10 p.m., and some did. May the gods bless their Halloween hearts. Each of their still-lit doors and glowing pumpkin skulls was a reprieve from the final moment when we'd admit it was over, and the walk home under those cobweb skies to wait through three more seasons for the only night that seemed to matter, for the only night that made sense. Thank you. I had a theater teacher in college who, uh, when we were talking about tragedies, she would talk about the catastrophic world, which it turns out is sort of a theater of the absurd thing, but the idea being that in order for tragic catharsis to pay off, right? You have to start with a world that's already somehow broken because the tragedy is the thing that breaks the cycle even though it ruins the characters you were rooting for. Anyway, this is a poem about werewolves. <laughs> um, it's called The Snap or Dream of the Werewolf. In the imagined after, you are alone and the worst has already happened. 
The woods ring with the kind of silence that spreads from a stalking predator. Or maybe it's all just dead. Every rustle through the underbrush, nothing but the wind, a last companion, blood-scented and forever. This is what you have waited for, this doom. Before, you were a tapestry of debts, obligate, omnivore. You healed into yourself like a bound foot, a careful cultivation, always something necrosing at the edges. In the catastrophic world, doom is the lightning crack rebreaking, every wrong healed bone shattering at once. Doom is a crater, is a cupped palm to curl up and weep in. Crouching at its center, a body failed and wailing, or else nothing, only claw marks. It's the dream of the werewolf, the possession, the rapture abandoned, the fantasy of resting at long last, at rock bottom, a clean raise, a body nothing is asked of but survival. My God, you want to be taken care of, to walk around to the other side of ruin and emerge in empty, rich soil. Barring that, what is left but to long for monstrousness, a form that owes nothing and cannot hurt, that is not ashamed of its hairy body that runs and runs itself deeper into the earth, camouflaged so well amongst the trees. Look around. Is Thebes not burning? Is the king not dead on his throne? Above, the sky is candy-eyed and bright. Below, the bones of the earth wail wrong-heeled in their settings. Unhinge your aching jaw. Feel the snap, the promise that you can become no more wretched than you already are. How tempting to wait for ruination as if it would not burn you too. How tempting to think you might slough off this skin as soon as the next waning moon. Thank you. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. Listening to Talking with Poets on Tuesday nights or Wednesday mornings, or check out our website, mediasanctuary.org, for future and past episodes of HMM. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marshall Hildreth. And I'm Kaylin McPherson. I'm also the engineer for tonight. We want to thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Headlines from Mark Dunley, who also produced the segment. Segment producers Andrea Cunliffe, Sina Bazilla-Hickey, and Brad Monkel, Tom Francis, and of course your co-hosts, Kaylin McPherson and Marshall Hildreth. We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag, or send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays, 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org slash HMM. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website or on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening, and thank you to our loyal listeners and sustainers. Until next time. Watch out for trick-or-treaters. (laughs) 